Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. You know, I'm the kind of person who likes playing board games. In our home, we have a bunch of board games in a closet. But my favorite type of board games are more strategic board games, um, where you have to think about what you're doing and plan things out several moves in advance. You kind of try to anticipate what other people are going to do. Now, that's not necessarily, that's not Heather's favorite type of board game, but that's, that's my favorite type of board game. And of course, the, the top of all the strategic board games, my favorite is the game of Risk. Now, when I play the game of Risk, I always, at least in the past, I've always had a strategy. I've always had a plan. And my plan, if you ever play me in Risk now, you'll know, has always been to try to get Australia first and or South America. You need to get one of those two continents first. You need to focus your energies there because if you can secure those two continents you can begin to build up the kind of resources you need to then advance your armies into the more valuable continents. So get those continents first. That's always been my plan. And well, on New Year's Eve, we were at my house playing Risk with some folks, and and that was going to be my plan again. That was my first move. I I put my little guy on on Australia. But then I began to get distracted, I think partially because of my son's uh, smack talk. And I began to focus because he was talking about coming in through Asia and doing all this stuff. And I said, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to put a wall between him and the rest of Europe. And so I started to move my guys in, into some other places. I, I abandoned my strategy. I abandoned my plan. And as a result of abandoning my strategy and my plan, well, let's just say I abandoned it to my own peril. Matter of fact, someone else playing with us, uh, Mr. Adrian DeLuca ended up taking Australia and then taking South America and actually used my strategy, and that little Argentine Napoleon conquered the world. <laughs> Friends, we are in a war. As Deemer said earlier, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we are at war against arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we are at war in order to take every thought captive to obey Christ. In this large cosmic war against this present darkness, there are many smaller battlefronts. And perhaps there is no more front, no, more, no battle more pressing, more urgent than the front-line battle for the sanctity of human life. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, 44 years ago, on this very day, January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade made abortion on demand legal in all 50 states. And since that day, that day alone, 60 million children have lost their lives in the United States alone, And that's only the medical abortions. The number of children aborted through things like the morning after pill and other means is not included in those stats. Worldwide, since that date of 1973, 1.4 billion, that's a B, billion babies have been aborted. Those are numbers that make the Holocaust look like a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert. Almost every year of Harbin's 10 years of existence, 
I have preached a message about defending the sanctity of human life on this Sunday. There have been some years where we haven't, but almost every year. So today I'm approaching it a little bit differently. Matter of fact, if you've already glanced at today's scripture, you may be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with the sanctity of human life? It has everything to do with it. Everything, because today's text lays out our strategy. It lays out our plan for defeating the culture of death and defending the culture of life. And we abandon this strategy to our own peril. So let's read today's text. Please stand if you would as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We stand at harvest because we believe with all of our heart that this is the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word. Lord, we place no confidence, and I hope no one in here places any confidence in the preacher this morning. No confidence in this weak man standing in this pulpit, but all of our confidence is in the Word of God. And the degree to which I stay aligned to the Word of God is the degree to which this message will be a powerful message. So God, I pray that you would keep me in line with the Scriptures and that you'd give me a mouth to speak and above all, give all of us in here, myself included, open ears to hear the gospel to hear the truth because without the spirit working on our hearts and our minds and making it fertile we are helpless so god we pray that you do a work through this message this morning we ask it in the name of jesus and in the power of the spirit amen please be seated so with the first words of today's text when paul says this is the apostle paul speaking in today's text paul says And I, when I came to you, brothers, what he's doing here, he is reminding the Corinthians of what he did the very first time he set foot in their city. He is recalling what his first missionary activity was, what his strategy was, what his battle plan was when he entered into the wicked city of Corinth. Now, the sexual immorality in Corinth alone is legendary. And the Corinth of Paul's day, being a Roman city, was also a culture of death. Children in Corinth, like in most Roman cities, were often discarded like trash. Literally, they were thrown on the trash heap. I recently read in a secular online 
um, scientific journal an article detailing the archaeological finds that shed light on the Roman practice of discarding infants on the trash heaps. The article I read asks, and this is a secular article, it asks, why did the Romans do this? And the author of the article comes to this conclusion, quote, As horrifying as the killing of newborns seems to modern people, in ancient Rome, babies, listen to this, weren't considered fully human upon birth. Instead, they gained humanity over time, first with their naming a few days after birth, and later when they cut their teeth and could eat solid food. Why did they do it? Why did they throw their infants on the trash heaps? It's because the children were not considered fully human. Hmm. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? Not fully human was the logic used to justify slavery. And it's the logic still being used on this very day found in the language of the Roe v. Wade decision itself. It's the justification being used to abort babies. So how does Paul, how does Paul come into that culture rampant with sexual immorality like our culture, rampant with a culture of death? How does he come into that city? What's his game plan? What's his first move? Well, we have it here in this passage. He's telling them how he came. And so the question I have for us that I want us to draw from this passage as we look at it today is, what is our strategy to defeat the culture of death and promote a culture of life in our day? So in your notes there, we're going to answer that question. And so we will defeat the culture of death and promote a culture of life with, first of all, number one, a message from God. A message from God Verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul begins his discussion here with the Corinthians about how he came. He begins talking negatively regarding what his message was not like. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to focus, first of all, on the fact that Paul did bring a message. He did bring a testimony to the people. Now, some of your translations may say, have the word mystery there instead of the word testimony. But testimony is the better translation. So the first thing I want us to notice is that Paul didn't come into Corinth with his own testimony. He came with God's testimony, God's witness, God's message. He came proclaiming the testimony of God. I remember in college, the first time I ever had any sort of evangelism training in my life, we spent a lot of time in that evangelism training working on and refining and perfecting and practicing our testimony. But I also remember that evangelism training, we spent relatively little time in the Word of God looking at God's testimony. Yeah, we were given some key verses to use to squeeze in here or there, but really the focus was on our testimony. I'm so glad that this morning, as we talked about evangelism, we didn't sit here and focus on our testimony. We focused on ten specific verses that talk about God's testimony. What does God say about the condition of man? What does God say about the solution for man? 
Even Peter, the Apostle Peter himself in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. I'm not going to read that whole passage. But in that passage, he's, he's talking to the, to the, to the churches he's writing to. And, and he's, even, he's talking about, hey, listen, man, we, we heard these things. We saw these things. He even refers to his experience of seeing Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he says this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. In other words, he says the prophetic word is even more important than our testimony. And that's the apostle Peter. How much more us. Listen, as we go into this culture of death, we don't go in talking about our story. It's okay to talk about your story so long as your story gives way to his story, his testimony, what he has to say. So the first thing Paul does as he steps off that boat into the wicked streets of Corinth is he begins to proclaim the testimony of God. He has one strategy. He has one first move, and it is to proclaim God's word. So God's word speaks. Regarding God's word, I want us to see three things as we continue here. God's word speaks. God's word speaks a sufficient word. And God's word speaks a sufficient and superior word. God speaks, what he speaks is sufficient, what he speaks is not only sufficient, it is superior. God's word speaks to our culture of death. It's common to hear supporters of abortion, and by the way, let me just say real quickly here, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday isn't just about abortion. One of the newest fronts opened up is the fact that, that state after state is now beginning to, to legalize euthanasia, legalized physician-assisted suicide. So, so this isn't just about abortion, but in regards to abortion specifically, it's common to hear supporters of abortion say that, the well, the Bible doesn't explicitly speak against the act of abortion. Well, you're right. There's no specific passage that says, do not have an abortion. But the scriptures are filled with very clear, very loud truths that when they are, they are applied to the specific situations across the spectrum of our lives, have everything to say about everything we do. And so, God's word speaks clearly regarding the value of human life. Let me just pick one verse, Genesis 1, 27 We've been studying Genesis. God created man in his own image. Could there be any other reason? Could there be any other value greater than that right there? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God's word speaks clearly about the value of human life. And there's lots of other verses we could go to. But God's word speaks clearly regarding the humanity and the personhood of unborn children. There's many verses we could go to for that as well. But let me pick one. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God doesn't know clumps of cells. God doesn't know pieces of tissue. God knows people. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God's word speaks clearly regarding the wickedness of taking innocent human life. Proverbs 6, 16 and following. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. And the third one of those seven is this. Hands that shed innocent blood. God's word speaks clearly regarding the just penalty for taking 
innocent human life. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God's word speaks clearly regarding the particular heinousness of killing children. Leviticus 20, verse 2. Say to the people of Israel... Any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. What's Molech? If you don't know what Molech is, Molech was the false god of the Amorites. Molech was this idol that was half man, half bull. And the Amorites would take their children. Well, first of all, they would heat up this altar Scholars say that either they, they lit a fire around it or maybe some of the altars actually had fire inside of it and they would light this fire. But the point was this metal, this metal image would get hot and it had hands that were held out like this. And the people, the Amorites, would take their children and they would put their children on these scalding hot hands. And the hands were usually at an angle so the child would sit there for a little while and then he would roll off and fall into the fire. And so that they wouldn't hear the screams of the children, they played drums and flutes while the people sat there and watched these children fall into the fire. And the crazy thing is, God had to tell his people not to do that. Are you kidding me? And the even crazier thing is, it wasn't long before they began to do it. Solomon himself built an altar to Molech to please one of the wives that he shouldn't have married in the first place. So God's word speaks clearly about the heinousness of, of particularly of the killing of children. You see, we still have the altar of Molech today, only the placard on it doesn't read Molech. It reads reproductive freedom. God has not left himself without a witness on these issues. God's word speaks, and it speaks a sufficient word. That's what Paul is referring to, the sufficiency of Scripture in verse 1, when he says that he did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech or wisdom. What Paul is referring to here is the manner in which God's testimony is shared, not the content of it. We'll focus on that later. The content's coming a bit later. Here Paul is contrasting himself with professional orators and rhetoricians of his day. You see, these men would come into town and they would sway people with the power of their rhetoric. But the power wasn't in the message. It wasn't in the content of the message. It was in the delivery. They came with flowery speech designed to tickle the ears and stir the emotions. We, we can relate to this, right? I mean, how many of us have listened to a, a politician speak for an hour and with flowing language only at the end of the speech to sit back and think, did he really say anything? Paul didn't come proclaiming God's testimony in that sort of way. He didn't need to dress it up. He didn't need to make it soothing to the ear. He didn't need to make it more palatable to man's tastes. He didn't need to make it relevant to the wicked Corinthian culture. He didn't accommodate it. He didn't adjust it. He simply rested in it. He simply trusted in its power and its sufficiency. Paul had no desire to impress the people with some polished oratorical form, lofty speech. Or with some profound philosophical insights, wisdom. He had no desire to be creative or ingenious. 
Too many pastors spend too much of their time trying to figure out how to be ingenious and creative instead of studying the word itself. I will unapologetically take about 20 to 30 hours a week preparing a message, and I will not take that time. I will not sacrifice that time so that I can somehow get creative. I've been there before. I've been that kind of pastor. I'm not going back. Because the power isn't in my creativity, my ingenuity, my ability to tickle your ears. The power of God is in this word right here, and let's preach it. Let's take it to the world. That's where it is. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul was promoting shoddy preaching. And that he didn't care about communicating cogently and clearly. His point here is that he didn't want to put his confidence in himself or draw attention to himself. He trusted in the sufficiency of God's word, which itself is cogent and clear. God doesn't need us help communicating. He doesn't need us to be his PR agent. Hey, God, let me help you. Let me help you kind of communicate this a little. Let me spin this for the culture for you because this really stuff really is not relevant today. God is not hiring PR agents. He wants heralders. A few of us from the church were at the G3 conference this weekend in Atlanta. I think a few more of you here streamed it online. Uh, The focus of the conference was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You do realize that this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, don't you? If you don't, you need to know that. It's a big deal. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't be here without it. So it's a big deal, okay? Now, At the core of the Reformation were the five solas. Here's your quiz this morning. What are they? Sola. Scriptura. Okay, what else? Sola gratia. Grace alone. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. What else? Sola fide. Faith alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. And soli deo gloria. To God's glory Alone, those are the five pillars of the Protestant Reformation. But in many ways, the chief of those pillars is sola scriptura. God's word alone. Sola scriptura isn't only about the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. That doctrine is also about the sufficiency of God's word. I'm afraid... There's a lot of evangelicals, and there's a lot of evangelical churches that will gladly, and I praise God for this, affirm the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word. But the question is, do we affirm the sufficiency of God's Word? Because if we affirm the sufficiency of God's Word, that changes the way we do church. That changes the way we do life. It's not just about, hey, God has spoken a good word. God has spoken a sufficient word. Word absolutely sufficient for everything. 2 Timothy 3.15 says we, that through it we're equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3 says that through it we've been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. Sometimes people say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible. But when the rubber hits the road, we go outside of the Bible to govern our lives, our faith, and our churches. People opt for psychological self-help from the wisdom of man rather than the spiritual sanctification that comes from the Word of God. 
People structure the church around business methodology rather than biblical ecclesiology. This book is not only infallible and inerrant, it is absolutely and totally sufficient for life and for faith and for practice. Is the Bible enough or is it not? Well, why were we praying for the Russians this morning? Hey, you know what? They, half of them say they're Christians. Why pray for them? Our specific focus of our prayer is that they need the word of God. And, even though, and I doubt 50% of Russia is Christian, by the way. Even those that are Christian need the Bible, the whole scripture, the whole counsel of God in their language because they've got to be able to live by it. The Bible is enough. God speaks. God speaks a sufficient word. God speaks a superior word. It's superior because it points to Christ. And that's the second point this morning. We will defeat the culture of death and promote a culture of life with a message from God about the Son of God. A message from God about the Son of God. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ And him crucified. Listen to me closely. If we stop at our first point, which is where a lot of sermons on sanctity of human life stop. Matter of fact, I am guilty of this. I've gone back and listened to some of my early sermons on the sanctity of human life. And it had a lot of scripture about why God condemns what we allow and what we we call choice. It had a lot of stats in it. And it had a lot of truth in it. That wasn't the problem. The problem is, in some of my early sermons, they didn't get to the cross. They didn't go where they needed to go. If we stop at point number one, namely that the Bible speaks clearly about the taking of innocent life, we fall short. We will not, we cannot win the battle if we simply treat the Bible like a manual of moral codes. The Bible is ultimately a story. A story about Jesus. We cannot, as we study in in the evangelism class this morning, we cannot merely give the law of God. But we must point people to the one who fulfilled the law of God. The law, all these things about God hating the taking of innocent life, is meant to point people to the one who is the author of life, Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story about God's plan to redeem mankind in and through the Son. Paul didn't come into Corinth proclaiming a new moral code. He came into Corinth proclaiming new life in Christ. When Paul says he decided to know nothing except Jesus, that means that he was going to center all of his thoughts, focus all of his messages on Jesus Christ, on the gospel. This gives us huge insight into Paul's hermeneutic, the way he interprets scripture. You remember when Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, because you may not remember, hopefully you're reading scripture so you know this, but we did preach through Acts years and years ago. Acts 20, verse um, 27 Paul says this to the Ephesian elders. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul says that his ministry involves preaching, teaching, proclaiming the whole counsel of God. 
But here he says that he, his message is nothing except Jesus and him crucified. But my friends, those two statements are not at odds because Paul knows what we should know. Namely, that the whole counsel of God has one aim, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of all the counsel of God. Which is exactly what Jesus himself taught. Namely, in more than one place, but most clearly in Luke chapter 24. So Paul's interpretive lens was Christocentric. And so we go to this culture of death with a word. A word that speaks clearly about life. But a word, as I said earlier, that points to the author of life. If we don't point to Jesus, what we will leave people either in desperation or legalism. And so, listen to me. We must put our hope in the tr- for transforming the culture... First and foremost, in the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That's where our hope is. Thus, our message is not built on human power and wisdom, but on the foolishness of the cross. Back up with me a little bit. Take your Bibles. Hope you got them still open. And rewind to chapter 1. Now, we read this passage earlier. I intentionally had it read earlier, but I want to read it again now. A little bit more focused. I want you to look as we read this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. We'll read to the end of the, to verse 31. I want you to listen for two words. The word power and the word wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to read this again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made Foolish, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those of us who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written. Let the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. Paul does not want anyone boasting. In their own wisdom. Or in their own power. Or in any preacher's wisdom. Or power. The context of this whole whole passage is that Paul has been, he comes down on the Corinthians pretty, pretty hard, pretty early because of their divisiveness. 
because they were following different preachers. They were, they, one guy liked this guy, one guy liked this guy. And obviously, they were putting their hope in the wisdom of man instead of in the power of the gospel. And it was causing division. So Paul's bringing them back to where they need to be putting their hope. Man's wisdom and man's power can do nothing. It can't accomplish anything. It can't save anyone. So let's return to today's text and pick it back up in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. So not only is the manner, the manner of Paul's speech um, marked with, by not having lofty words of wisdom, so too the content of Paul's speech was not filled with plausible words of wisdom. Plausible or persuasive, maybe your translation says. Paul knew that there was no power in the wisdom of man to change the corruption of Corinth. He couldn't change the corruption of Corinth through human logic and reason. Paul's strategy was to preach the gospel. For in the gospel there resides true power. You know this verse, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. So what does this mean for us in our battle against this dark culture of death? Does this mean that we, we don't use good philosophical arguments against abortion? Good rational arguments against abortion? Good logical arguments against abortion? No, we can and we certainly should use those things. Matter of fact, I urge you, to learn how to intelligently argue the pro-life position. But the biblically minded Christian knows that human logic and human reason can only go so far. Ultimately, our message can't rest on those things. It has to get to the gospel. We must preach the transforming message of the gospel. There are some very good logical and philosophical arguments against abortion. How many of you are familiar, I think I probably say this every year we do the, 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 the sermon. How many of you are familiar with the sled test? Okay, raise your hands if you're familiar with the sled test. You know this, Wow, not as many as I thought. Okay, when you're arguing with a, about someone and, and they're, they're saying, well, you know, that, that, that thing in the womb isn't really a person. Well, does that hold any philosophical water? So you can use the sled test. The S stands for size. Okay, because they'll say something along the lines of, well, how can some little microscopic uh, clump of cells really be a person? Well, does size, is size what determines personhood? I mean, we were at the G3 conference, and, and I got to come up close to Vody Bauckham. He looks big on video. He looks like Goliath in person, all right? The dude is huge. His arms are like the size of tree trunks. I was actually worried that if I bumped his arm, it might break mine, okay? He's a gigantic dude. Now, he's much bigger than I am because of his size, is he of more value than I am? Is he of more value than, than his daughter, who is much smaller than him? No. There's no. That doesn't hold any ground. The L in the sled test is, is level of development. So does level of development uh, determine person? Well, this, this thing in the womb, it hasn't even, hasn't even fully developed yet. How can that be a person? Well, since when does level of development de- determine whether or not uh, someone is a human, whether or not someone has value. A four-year-old girl is not as developed as a 14-year-old girl. There are certain parts of her body that haven't kicked in yet. 
And they won't for until she hits puberty. She's less developed than the teenager. She is not less valuable than the teenager. So that's level of development. The E stands for environment, our location, where we're at. So someone will say, well, how can how, the person's in the mother's womb, and, and that's, that's her body. So, so that, they're not necessarily a person because they're there. But how does, how does our location, how does our environment, E, determine if we're human and whether or not we have value? It doesn't. It does the baby that's 22-week-old 22, preemie baby that's clinging to life in the incubator, does he have more value than the 22-week-old baby that's still in the mother's womb? No, they have equal value, but one can be slaughtered legally. The other, if you walked into the hospital and started pulling the plugs on that incubator, you'd be in jail. So environment doesn't determine personhood. And then the D stands for dependence or um, dependency or, uh, or the level of dependency. But the, the, the letter is D. And so does dependency determine our personhood? So you, people say, well, you know, that thing, that thing in the womb can't even exist on its own. It can't, it can't, it's not viable. He can't, how is that a person? Well, you know what? Someone who's been in a tragic car accident and is now paraplegic and having to be fed by someone else all the time for the rest of their life is absolutely dependent on someone else for life. And that does not make them less valuable than the person who's not dependent. So these, these are good philosophical arguments. You need to know these. There are great reasonable legal arguments against abortion. 38 states have uh, fetal homicide laws so that if, if a baby is killed, let's just give you an example. Let's say a, a man is drunk driving and he hits a car that's carrying a pregnant woman in, woman in it and then hitting that car causes her baby to die. He can be put in jail through the fetal homicide laws that are in place in 38 states. Here's the great irony of it, and here's the great legal argument. That woman could have been on her way to the abortion clinic to do exactly what that man did. But it's absolutely legal. How on earth does it make any legal sense that this man's punished and she's not? So there's great legal arguments that you need to know, and there's great rational, scientific, medical arguments you need to know. The fact of... The fact, like, at 22 days after conception, the circulatory system is now functioning such that in a baby, he begins to have a heartbeat. 22 days. And you can go on, you can look up these on uh, in the internet. You can go, you don't have to go to the internet. You can go to any secular university and open the biology book and you'll see these things. You see the rational argument for the medical reasons why we shouldn't abort babies. So there's very rational, reasonable, logical arguments. But reason alone falls short. And here's why. Here's why. The mind is corrupted just like the rest of our being. That's why reason alone isn't sufficient. Reason can't transform a fallen, sinful mind Whatever you convince someone of rationally, they can be unconvinced of rationally by someone else. The women out there protesting right now on this very Lord's Day in Washington with signs that say keep abortion legal and other signs that I can't repeat are not stupid, illogical, irrational women. No, they are lost and they're acting like lost people. They are futile in their thinking. Their sinful minds have been darkened by the fall. 
Their worldview is upside down. You, you understand what a worldview is, right? The best way I explain worldview to, to students when I'm teaching on worldview is um, a lot of people talk about, well, worldview is the lens through which you look. I, I like to compare worldview to a map. Your worldview is your map of how to navigate life, and your map is only good to the degree to which it, it is consistent with or it reflects the, the reality of what the topography really is. So a Christian worldview is a worldview that actually sees the world as it is. What's happening in the fallen mind is that the worldview is turned upside down. And so no matter how much you may convince logically and rationally that person that L.A., Los Angeles, is on the West Coast, their map is upside down. You're not going to get them there through reason alone. They need the world-tilting gospel to change their thinking. We need to understand, and this was mentioned in the video we watched this morning, we need to understand the noetic effects of sin. Noetic means our ability to perceive and to think. The noetic effects of sin means that sin is corrupted and undermined the human mind and intellect. In other words, the mind and the intellect are just as depraved as the rest of our being. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, listen to this, futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Ephesians four seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. You do realize logic and reason are part of our fleshly being. We do not walk according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. So you can see why plausible words of wisdom, as Paul puts it in today's text, will only go so far. They are insufficient. What mankind needs is a new nature, a new heart, a renewed mind. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body, and listen to this, and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's a challenge for you. Go down to your local, to a local mortuary. Go in and try to reason with one of the corpses. And try to rationally convince him to stand up and start acting like a living person. Try to convince him that he needs to stand up and act like a living person. What you need is a miracle. 
You need life to come into the dead body before it can act like anything. Why on earth do we expect a fallen, broken sinner to respond to our fleshly arguments using rhetoric and logic? What they need is the gospel. They need to be awoken from their dead state. And that only happens through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, young adults in here, let me talk to you real quick. Learn how to persuasively argue the pro-life position. Learn how to persuasively argue about the Christian faith. Learn learn the teleological and the cosmological arguments for the existence of God. Learn how to, to give good apologetics for the resurrection. Learn these things. But friends, children, don't learn them at the expense of the gospel. Don't set the gospel aside and think, wow, I really am smart. I can out-argue anyone. That is the wrong first move. And you do it to your own peril. So church, our task, not the task of politicians and policymakers or social action committees and commissions or pro-life lobbyists and lawyers, our task, Our task as the local church, the entity created and commissioned by God as the primary means by which he has chosen to kick down the gates of hell. Our task as the local church is to proclaim the gospel. And so church, we will invest our time, we will spend our money, we will focus our prayers, and we will base our partnerships on gospel-centered efforts to defeat the culture of death and promote the culture of life with the only thing that will make any difference, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our strategy. That's our move. And we abandon it to our own peril. Friends, the chief shepherd will remove his lampstand the moment a church removes the gospel. This doesn't mean, Christians, we don't think or that we don't use logic and reason. No, as I said earlier, logic and reason play a role. But it's gospel-centered logic and reason. Matter of fact, you know what Martin Lloyd-Jones, what, what he called preaching? He had, he had a three-word definition of preaching. You want to know what it is? Other than Deemer? Logic on fire. Not just logic. Logic on fire with the gospel. Logic on fire. Paul's epistles are filled with logic on fire. Rational arguments. But they find their source their foundation, and their aim in Jesus Christ. From him, through him, to him, all things. It is the message of the cross that captures the mind and brings logic into conformity with God's truth. And the regenerating work of the Spirit of God is necessary for the mind to be conformed to, gospel, to God's truth, I should say. So let me, let me go ahead and bring up our third point, because I know you guys, I've already seen a couple of you glancing back at the clock. Hang in there. This is better than football, Okay? If it's not, come talk to me afterwards. But this is better than football. So hang in there. We'll defeat the culture of death and promote a culture of life with a message from God about the Son of God in the power of the Spirit of God. In the power of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14. If you jump down a little bit, it says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we go into the marketplace, we go into the workplace, we go into our homes, we go into our schools, we go into wherever God has placed us with a gospel message, but we go with our confidence in the Spirit of God. Because only the Spirit of God can do the work that needs to be done. Verse 3, 
of our text today. It says, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But listen, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Real quickly here, notice the triune nature of God in the text. The message of God, about the Son of God, through the power of the Spirit of God. Not only was the manner of God's message, Paul's message, not lofty and elegant. Not only was the content of Paul's message not resting on plausible words of wisdom. But also Paul himself, the messenger, was not powerful and impressive. It says that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Some people just project power the moment they walk into a room. I don't think Paul was one of those. Like I said at the conference, Bodhi's one of those. <laughs> Bodhi walks in the room, you're like, Bodhi's here, all right? That's not Paul, though. Paul doesn't, he's, he's weak. He wasn't much to look at. He wasn't much to listen to. Kind of like me. All right? Paul didn't bound into Corinth with, with cockiness and confidence and arrogance. Too many church planters, including myself, start with their first move filled with cockiness and arrogance. I remember the search committee at First Baptist Snellville when we came there asked me why I thought I'm confessing sin to you right now. Why I thought I could do the things in Snellville that we had done way back in Bentonville. Because we had built a great children's ministry. And I said these foolish words and so thankful for the grace of God because I should have died on the spot. I said everything I touch turns to gold. And there's not a day in my life that I don't go regretting those words. First of all, God turned everything I touched in Snellville to ash. <laughs> what arrogance. Too, too many pastors are cocky, strutting in to the world. Not Paul. That's, that wasn't his first move. Paul, I'm sure, was a very brilliant man. We know from his writings. We know he was a very learned man. But he knew that nothing in and of himself was sufficient to the task. He needed something. He needed power outside of himself. He needed a demonstration of the spirit and the power. Over and over again, Paul's ministry, we see him deflect attention from himself so as to remind us that it's the Holy Spirit is the one who gets the credit. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Oh, friends, in this battle for life, we can put no confidence in ourselves, but instead we trust the power of God's gospel being worked in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works through the Spirit's words. These words of this book that we've talked about here this morning... These words that all point to Jesus were uttered by the Holy Spirit of God. They're God-breathed. And that's why there's power in them. Because they're spirit-wrought. So we put our hope in the Spirit to use His words. And for Him to give us clarity to use His words. And we put our trust in Him to open the human heart to receive His words. Only the Spirit can open the human heart. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit, talking about your new birth, is from the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit opens the heart. I'm not going to preach the gospel, and you're not going to preach it. You shouldn't preach the gospel to someone thinking, I can do something to convince this person. You can't do squat. Only the Holy Spirit can open the heart. And so we put all of our hope, all of our trust in Holy Spirit of God. Come rain down like fire on my logic. So that you can do a work that I could never even imagine doing. Luke 12, 11 says, Do not be anxious about how you're going to defend yourself or what you should say. This is Jesus speaking. He's talking about those times where we're going to get either called in front of people and have to testify. Don't worry about what you're going to say. He said, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How much damage has been done in the church and even in the name of Christ by people who have relied on their own strength and their own wisdom and their own words. Paul's strategy for the culture of death he lived in was to bring the message of God a message about the Son of God, and to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the only winning strategy as he surveyed the battlefield in Corinth. And it's our only winning strategy as well. And let me bring us to our fourth point, and we'll conclude. This is the conclusion, the fourth point. We will defeat the culture of death and promote a culture of life with a message from God about the Son of God and the power of the Spirit of God in order to see sinners put their hope in God Verses 4 and 5 again. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Listen to this, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. True faith is faith that rests on the unadulterated gospel. If we're going out there and we're just giving our testimony and we're not giving the full gospel, we may see people come to Jesus. But many of those people will fall away. Because they actually didn't come to the gospel. And that's how I want to conclude today's message. Ultimately, the gospel compels us to defend life. For God created man in his image to be his image bearers. And despite man's wicked rebellion against God, God chose to redeem for himself as a precious possession, a people for himself, a bride for his son. And so the son, in love for the father, robed himself in flesh, and went into our wicked world, came into our wicked world in order to redeem his people, in order to redeem his bride. So in to do that, in order to do that, he suffered and he died on the cross. He took the wrath of God for our rebellion, the wrath that we deserved, and he lived the perfect, sinless, holy life that we could not live in our place. And then Jesus rose again, securing for us eternal life. And so man now in Christ can do what he was created to do, namely to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This issue of life matters because God's not, God doesn't, it's not that just that God hates to see children die. God deserves worshipers. That's why life matters. That's why life matters. Christian, let us get our strategy for combating a culture of death and promoting a culture of life from Paul. And let us get it right. We walk away from Paul's strategy and God's strategy at our own peril. An unbeliever, if there be any unbelievers in the room here this morning, I can show you clearly, logically, scientifically, morally, why abortion is wrong. But you will not listen to me unless Christ does a work in your heart and in your mind. So 
trusting in the necessary work of the Holy Spirit, I beg you this morning to repent of your sin, to turn from your rebellion against God. I want you to hear and believe all that Jesus Christ has done in the sacrificing of himself to save sinners. And I want you to put all your hope, all your faith, firmly in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And then, and then, just wait and see how Jesus turns everything right side up. Just wait and see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this morning, Lord, I pray that you would put the fire in our heart. I pray, Lord, that you would break our hearts over the the Holocaust that's happening. As the stats show us, in one day, in one day, About 3,000 children are aborted. Father, help us to get our minds to think about 9-11 right now. 3,000 people at 9-11 died. And the whole nation sat there with our mouths open, stunned. And 3,000 babies die every day, and the whole nation sits with our mouths closed and our eyes covered. Oh, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive our apathy. Forgive us for so blindly turning an eye and by our silence condoning what's happening. So God, give us the tools we need. You've, you've, you've awakened our minds so we can think logically. We can think rationally. We, can, we see the world as it is. But God, let us put our hope in the gospel because that's what really transforms lives. That's where the hope is. That's where the power is. So, Lord, as we leave here, may we be gospel-proclaiming, life-loving, spirit-empowered children of God who can no longer cover our mouth and who can no longer cover our eyes. I ask all this in the precious name of Jesus who died for sinners like us. In his name we pray. Amen.